0: All right, folks, we have a fun one today, the title being Abra Spam. For all you Monty Python fans out there, you'll remember several funny skits through the years regarding (laughs) Spam, Spam, Spam. (laughs) I didn't want any Spam. (laughs) You're going to eat Spam. Uh,
1: (laughs) Apparently, as a member of the church, you are force-fed Spam. Yes, in the form of Abra-spam, <laughs> uh, other,
0: otherwise known as the Book of Abraham, uh, the whole Pearlgate price. <laughs> uh, you get the point, point. Uh, and before we jump into it, we want to share a little bit of LDS Church in the news. news. So here's a fun one. Uh, I usually pull out of the newspaper or something like that. This one's a little different. It's from... It's from the Friendly Atheist (laughs) publication. (laughs) Not that that hurts or tarnishes the the veracity of this, because you can look it up separately if you're so inclined. The title of the article, uh, the Mormon Church just got sued for perpetuating a giant, quote, scheme of lies, unquote. Okay, a woman who grew up in the Mormon Church is suing it the whole damn religion, (laughs) for lying to her. Laura A. Gaddy filed the class action lawsuit this week, and it's a doozy. She insists that her lawsuit isn't about the church lying in the same way all religions make things up. (laughs) Otherwise, creationist Ken Ham would be sued every freaking day. (laughs) I'm reading from the article, by the way. She's angry at the church for, quote, misrepresenting the foundational history of Mormonism, unquote, saying the faith was founded on a series of beliefs which the church has since, quote, whitewashed and manipulated, leading to, quote, immeasurable emotional harm in the form of existential crisis, suicides, broken families, insomnia, anxiety, and depression. Wow. Uh, here's an example of what she's talking about, as explained by Courthouse News Service. So all this is quoting uh, that the the uh, news service. Okay, according to Mormon history, an angel guided Joe Smith to buried gold plates near his home in upstate New York in 1823. Smith allegedly collected the plates, which were inscribed in reformed Egyptian by ancient Americans with Hebraic DNA, and translated them into the church's signature text, the Book of Mormon, which he published in 1830. Mormons migrated to Ohio in 1831 due to persecution for their beliefs, which included polygamy, and Smith was killed by an angry mob while jailed in Missouri in 1844. Mormon settlers arrived in the Great Salt Lake Valley in 1847. Gaddy claims that LDS leaders have recently and partially admitted albeit in an intentionally limited and ever-changing manner, (laughs) that Smith did not directly use gold plates to create the Book of Mormon, contradicting orthodox narrative. Mm. Interesting. Um, Let's see. Gaddy is alleging fraud, breach of fiduciary duties, emotional distress. RICO, which applies to criminal organizations. Wow, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's extensive, sort, yeah. yeah. So, what's she suing for? She wants all the money she's given the church over her lifetime.
1: Mm-hmm. Sounds, sounds good. fair,
0: yeah. It sounds yeah. fair. Um, hmm, interesting, yeah. So, it's a class action. I'll actually be looking into that. Uh, if it's not like some inordinate amount of work, because I'm kind of lazy in some ways um i might join the class action this might actually be i've never heard anybody taking the class action to suit yet there's a lot of people who are trying to gather signatures and Mm -hmm. interest and you know hey let's see if we can get enough momentum here to do a class action lawsuit um anyway okay yeah interesting so uh go go laura
1: Yep. and hopefully that'll
0: be yeah so good for her exactly so, Dave, let's get to Abraspam. Why would we call it Abraspam? Well, the book of Abraham is a bunch of spam. And this, this is on the tail of our last episode where we talked about the gift and power of God, or fraud. Same and, thing. And uh, same thing, right? Uh, why even bring it up? How about we just start with that and we level set with that question? Why would we even bring up this topic? Well... I'll tell you why, from my perspective, Dave. You can jump in and give us your thoughts. Of course, um, the Book of Mormon, and, and from the mouth of its leaders, right for for ever since its inception, really, they've wrapped a lot of red- rhetoric around the Book of Mormon, uh, the namesake of the church, until you know they changed it recently because, after all, they were offending Jesus and they were giving a major victory to Satan, according <laughs> to Russell M. Nelson. But I digress. Uh, they they would their common rhetoric, right? You name the analogy; it's the keystone of our religion. It's it's the foundation. The Book of Mormon makes or breaks the you know either it's true or not, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And and kind of I don't know if it buried under the covers would be totally accurate, but kind of pushed to the side of the limelight a little bit has been another production of Joseph Smith's, which was the Pearl of Great Price the book of Abraham being kind of the key uh, element of that. And um, I would say it's equally important to the book of Mormon in the question of whether or not Joseph Smith was really a prophet, seer, and revelator of God. And It's kind of again been pushed aside. The focus has been majorly the Book of Mormon, of course, as we know, right. But I would say it's just as important in that vein. So, in other words, if the Book of Mormon were true, which you know it's demonstrably untrue, but but regardless, let's go in fantasy land for a second and say the Book of Mormon was true, but the Book of Abraham was was a fraud or a hoax. that would create some major dichotomy in in the religion. And so people would have to scratch their head about Joseph's power. Why is this one real, but this one isn't? And what the heck's going on? In the very best case, it would create some kind of a dichotomy or a conundrum, right, in the religious <laughs> belief. But the reality is the Book of Mormon isn't true, and the Book of Abraham kind of supports that, premise it supports the premise that joseph smith was a fraud basically is what we're talking about here bottom line so that's why it's important i think it's just as important i'll say just as important uh for another reason uh my wife her major nail in the coffin to use that old phrase was the book of abraham it's different for everybody Why did you ultimately, why did the shelf come crashing down, right? And with my wife's case, it was the Book of Abraham that crashed her shelf. She had a lot of other concerns on her shelf, like a lot of us had, swept them under the rug through the years. But her point was, look, if if that's a fraud, then of course, the Book of Mormon is also a fraud. Of course, all this other stuff is because Joseph Smith wasn't really a prophet, seer and revelator. Because he said he translated the scrolls, and if he was lying, oh my goodness, right? Like, that's that's a big, big deal. Party over. Party over. That was the House of Cards issue for her, was actually the Book of Abraham. That was kind of the last straw, if you will. So it is important. It's important to a lot of people. Um, so I've blabbed a little bit there, but that's kind of the premise of the episode. I, Dave, I'd love to have you kind of give us an intro into this issue why is it even an issue i mean what what's the whole right and then we're going to jump into some phases and talk about uh the book of abraham as far, you know from a historical perspective uh some of the content that was around during joseph's time and in the commentary about the book even back then and then kind of how things have progressed with that book and with the church and with how the world's looked at it and where does the church stand today? Uh, why are we going through those phases? Cause guys, things have changed <laughs> a lot, yeah, <laughs> and especially including how the church itself talks about the book of Abraham and, 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 and,
1: you know, defends it or whatever word you want to use. So go for it, Dave, uh, start us off. Well, I'll just mention one, one item here. And that is that, Joseph said he translated the Book of Mormon, but we had no plates to compare his translation with. When the Book of Abraham became available to him, he must have been shitting himself with excitement because now he's going to have an ancient manuscript, he's going to translate it, and then we'll be able to compare his translation for its authenticity. So Mm -hmm. it might have scared him to death, but he... See, let's go back to 1835. I think the average member of the church has a basic understanding of at least the whitewashed version of its own history that they're taught on Sunday. Right. So we, the average member knows 1835, the saints are in Kirtland, there's trouble. The three witnesses have left, members of the 12 have left, uh, this, the safety society went down. Uh, it's it's a bad time, and Joseph is is losing it. He's losing his following. So the Book of Abraham comes around, and now is an opportunity to show that he is in fact a prophet of God with the gift of seership and the ability mm-hmm. to translate ancient records. But what most people probably don't know is how did those mummies get to Kirtland to begin with? And I thought it might be worth sharing that it's a brief history. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, June 7th, 1831, a Frenchman named Antonio Cibolo and a crew of Turkish soldiers entered an Egyptian catacomb near the ancient city of Thebes. In the tomb, Cibolo found several hundred mummies. Several hundred? Only seven bodies were preserved well enough to withstand removal. The balance of Cibolo's discovery remained in its grave. And then he, the, the reason for that is there were two methods or orders of embalming that were practiced by the Egyptians. The body Cibolo was able to move had been embalmed by the higher of the two orders, which explains their better state of preservation. When Cibolo died the following year, the 11 mummies were inherited by his nephew, Michael Chandler
0: of ah. Philadelphia. So Chandler was his nephew. That's the part I forgot. Okay.
1: Right. That's how they came into his possession. Immediately after receiving the mummies in 1833, Chandler sold several of them to private collectors. In July 1835, Chandler went to Kirtland, Ohio, and inquired after Joseph Smith Jr., the Mormon translator, for five years Smith had been promoting the Book of Mormon as his own translation of mm. ancient records mm-hmm. he had claimed been written upon tablets of gold in Reformed Egyptian by early inhabitants of South American continent. <laughs> Which so itself that, is but, hilarious. We've talked yeah, about that. Yeah, a little so bit. Chandler's but, like, Oh, yeah. well, he can translate Reformed Egyptian, maybe he can translate Re- Egyptian too. Yeah, Let's go find out. Right. Sure. So Chandler sold the remaining four mummies from his inheritance to Smith and his associates for the sum of $2,400. Lots of money back then. By the way that would translate into around $60,000 today. Mm -hmm. Included in the sale were several Egyptian manuscripts, which also became the property of Smith. The mummies would later be destroyed in a museum fire. That's Chicago, 1871, by the way. Mm -hmm. But the manuscripts were destined to fuel a controversy that would stubbornly refuse to die. Man, is that ever true? So they they ended up, by the way, later uh, in the uh, Museum of Art in New York City, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, Uh, so they weren't all destroyed in the fire. Uh, Dr. Arthur Mace, former assistant curator of this museum, said the Egyptian characters can now be read almost as easily as Greek, and five-minute study in an Egyptian gallery of any museum should be enough to convince any educated man of the clumsiness of Smith's imposture. (laughs) That's just (laughs) one statement, and we've got a couple dozen of them. We'll end up reading a few of them from Egyptologists yeah. themselves uh, about the. Uh, <laughs> hey,
0: tell people which book you're reading from,
1: by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I should. Uh, yeah. This is a book by Andrew, Alexander uh, Joseph, who was he's passed now, was a member of the RLDS church and uh, brilliant man he goes a completely different direction he he opens the book tells the history lets us know what an impostor fake and fraud smith is but then goes on to explain uh what th- the hypocephalus all which right. were the facsimiles mm-hmm, there were three facsimiles in the book of abraham joseph smith completely fucked them all up don't know how else to say that sorry <laughs> but yeah and uh this guy goes on to explain It's amazing. He may be out of his mind, but, you know, insanity is real close to genius. Yeah. So it, it's quite a fascinating book. It's called Dry Bones, A Resurrection of Ancient Understandings, Alexander Joseph. Okay. okay. Interesting. Thanks for reminding me there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Um, you know, Speaking of 1912, I'll squeeze in a little bit about the New York Times article that came out. So the times came out with an article again, 1912 uh, titled museum walls, proclaim fraud of Mormon prophet. <laughs> <Museum walls. laughs> pretty, pretty direct. Imagine a new, a times article that direct today that that would basically, you know, that's an attack essentially yeah. uh, against the church and honestly, rightly so good for them. Uh let me just read the first couple paragraphs of this article. Fascinating. By the way, you guys can find this online. It's it's there's no copyright uh with the 1912 New York Times, uh as far as an, any kind of issue with with quoting or whatever. I found it in PDF form, this particular article. Um so uh, the sacred books of the Mormon Church, it begins. Which this holy American cult proclaims to have been given. <laughs> right <laughs> off, they call him a cult. They're not holding any uh, punches here. Incidentally, I don't see an author on this article, which is a little odd. Uh, I gotta 19, say,
1: twelve. I don't know. Yeah,
0: so no author mentioned that I can see. If any listeners see the author, you know, let me know. But uh, okay, anyway, has been given. Okay, so the the proclaims to have been given divinely to the first first Mormon prophet as a solemn addenda to the known scriptures have now been in circulation in Mormondom for about 70 years. On their faith that the texts were really produced through the gift and power of God, uh, plug to our last episode title. Hundreds of thousands of devotees have held Joseph Smith as the, quote, prophet, seer, and revelator of God and God's spokesman on earth. His successor, Joseph F. Smith, the present prophet in 1912, they held by the same title. And so strong is their faith that the prophet wields unlimited power in politics, in finance, and in religion in at least two Western states. I'm guessing they were talking about Utah and Idaho at the time. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Within three months, this is the, the fun paragraph, within three months, the only one of these sacred writings to which the test of scholarship could be applied, back to your earlier point, David, because there were no gold plates that you could see, is this really true, right? Um, but the scrolls existed, so let's test it. So the only, the only writings that could be tested have been submitted to such a test, in its authenticity, has been destroyed completely. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the walls of the Egyptian rooms of the Metropolitan Museum proclaim it to be a fraud. Dr. Albert M. Lithgow, curator of the Egyptian department, voices unequivocally unequivocally, the, condemna- the condemnatory evidence of the mute Egyptian drawings and hieroglyphics. The two... Two eminent scholars in England, two scholars in Germany, and four of the most noted Egyptologists in this country join without a dissenting paragraph in the condemnation. And then the article goes on. It mentions these other guys who condemned it. Professional Egyptologists. Here's the, here's the shake, right? Here's the deal. Uh, Joseph thought he could get away with it because he, Egyptian was considered, at the time of his translation, uh, to be a dead language. So it was safe, right? He was It was safe. I don't have to be... I won't be questioned on this translation because uh, nobody can read Egyptian, right? <laughs> so nobody can tell me I'm wrong. And then at the same time, I'll look like I really have the power of God to translate things and all this dissent that's happening that david mentioned going on in the church at that time this will rally the troops right this will make them hey joseph is a prophet let's get back solidly in the church wow god does talk to him and that was kind of the whole driver behind. that was it
1: yeah so let's uh go back to uh, 1966 actually is when the fragments The papyri, they never found the whole papyri but fragments Mm -hmm. and in the museum. uh, The church quickly obtained those and went to work that vindicating Joseph Smith or trying to. Let me read this here. Uh, this is again out of Alexander Joseph's book. A few months after the church's acquisition of the fragments, uh, Dr. Hugh Nibley of Brigham Young invited DJ Nelson to participate with the church uh, in making a modern translation of the manuscripts. Nelson is an active member of the church, priesthood holder, blah, blah, who characterizes and advertises himself as an Egyptologist. Nibley admits his shortage of qualifications to meet the task and uh, asks Nelson to help him. Now, let me give you an update. This is in the very back of his book with this, dj nelson on december 8th 1975 dj nelson asked the lds church to remove his name from its membership roles the conclusions he had drawn from his studies of joseph smith's egyptian translations were apparently the cause of this request very interesting stuff so uh
0: yeah so here here's another quote um it's difficult to deal seriously with Joseph Smith's impudent fraud, <laughs> wrote Dr. A.H. Sace of Oxford yes, University. Sace, yeah. The facsimile from the book of Abraham Number 2 is an ordinary hyposephalus, or however you pronounce that. Yeah. Uh, but the hieroglyphics upon it have been copied so ignorantly that hardly one of them is correct. I need scarcely say that Kolob, etc., are unknown to the Egyptian language. <laughs> Smith has turned the goddess Isis into a king and Osiris
1: into Abraham. <laughs> yeah, I, I read that one. Oh. As long as we're on a roll with those, here's one more, and then I can I can close the book here. From Mister Joseph, um, a Smith critic named Samuel A. B. Mercer provides us with the most apt conclusion. I say that if Smith knew Egyptian and correctly translated the facsimile, then I don't know a word of Egyptian and all modern Egyptologists are deceived. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you couldn't
0: be more direct, could you? Uh, so, So look, this is kind of the historical phase or phases. These are the phases of what's going on. So Joseph and crew... So it wasn't just, you know, a solo endeavor, although Joseph claims he, you know, he, of course, had the power from God to initiate this work. Uh, but, you know, William Phelps, Oliver Cowdery, uh, what was his first name, Parrish? Parrish? Uh, Warren? Warren Parrish. Uh, these were really the three main characters that were, quote unquote, helping Joseph with the translation around this period. Um these guys were all very imaginative in their effort, right? So one of the things they did as they translated the Egyptian characters, uh, so if you look at at hieroglyphs, you could really call them, so in linguistics, and I I only know a tiny bit of this because of my past study of Japanese, um, but there's, there's parallels that you can draw, and I'll explain what I'm talking about. So, in Chinese characters, which the Japanese and, and Koreans uh, to some degree have have adopted and uh, have simpl- simplified in many cases, but regardless, whatever, look at the Chinese character originally. You'll see uh, what linguists call radicals that make up a larger character. So, what that means is, you know, let's say I'm trying to think of an example, I should have thought of one before I jumped on. <laughs> Um, so uh, a single character, like the character for face, like the human face may have several tiny characters that by themselves, also you could pull out bigger and, and be a character by themselves, right? That would, you would cram these tiny figures into a single figure. And each of those tiny little figures are called radicals. So it almost reminds you of mathematics, right? So there's a tiny radical character that fits into a a broader single character when you shove them all together, okay? Well, that's not the case with hieroglyphs. Hieroglyphs, one character, one meaning, right? So um, what Joseph did is he mistook uh, in his imagination that hieroglyphics were built of these smaller radicals, each radical containing not even like Chinese, Japanese, Korean or whatever, like a single word concept, but each radical being like a freaking sentence. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) And so uh,
0: we have the notebooks, right? And that's part of what we wanted to talk about in our episode today. We have Joseph's diary. These are published by the way, in uh, the Joseph Smith papers um, project. And this is a site you can access online where you literally see the diaries that have been scanned digitally uh, in Joseph's handwriting, his journals, right? And he talks about uh, the translation of the book of Abraham in his journal, in his diary. And there's three or four or five entries. It's not really verbose, you know, just short little sentences. Today I began the work of translating uh, the scrolls that I received, um, etc., Well, separate from his diary was a notebook, and it has several people's handwriting in it, showing they were working on this as a group, right? Joseph's handwriting is predominant, Um, where on the left column of the note page, you see like one radical, one piece of a larger hieroglyph, and then he'll, he'll have a sentence or two of what that piece means, and then he'll go on to a second piece, and he'll say, this is what that means. And so... You put them all together and you get like a fucking paragraph (laughs) out of one character, right? Well, nothing could be further than the truth with Egyptian hieroglyphs. It's a very inefficient written language. There is just like one, like a character, it'll be like I, like a human eye, or this complex character is like a mountain, or whatever. You know, it's not a sentence, let alone a fucking paragraph of meaning. (laughs)
1: Well, in one
0: character, but he wouldn't know, but would I praise the imagination of that. I mean, I don't think he knew any Asian languages. He didn't know the concept of Chinese characters, which would even introduce you to this idea of radicals. So the fact that he even thought of, of pieces of meaning making it's pretty, I mean, you know, I got to hand it to the guy. That was pretty ingenious to think about. <laughs> um Although it was a complete fucking fabrication, you know, and it's and I, imagination I, I, run yeah. wild again. No kidding. And evidently Phelps and Cowdery and Parrish, you know, they they joined in. They're like, oh yeah, sure. oh that's cool. Yeah, good wow. one, Joseph. Well, what if <laughs> hey, what if this little phallic symbol meant meant dick? You know, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is cool. Well, what if it meant you know. I I stuck my dick in a, in a donkey around the corner of this tree all in one little character. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, so they, they were all in on it. Who knows? Maybe some whiskey was being poured and, you know, we had a 14 year old or two being passed around the room.
1: Okay. Now I'm getting bad, but. Well, let me, let me ask a question here. It, and we kind of already answered it, or at least Egypt, Egyptologists did. if, this text is not the book of Abraham and or the book of Joseph. What is it? Well, uh, one more quote from an e- Egyptologist. M. Theodore de Veria, as one of the pioneers in the field of Egyptology, recognized immediately these documents as funerary texts, very common yes. funerary yes. texts, mm-hmm. and they dated to around 200 B.C., 1,800 years after the time of Abraham. Whoops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Deveria dismissed Joseph's explanation as rambling nonsense. <laughs> there. <I'm done> <laughs> the rambling
0: quote. nonsense. Yeah,
1: rambling So, yes,
0: nonsense. we've brought this up before. Uh, it's well known now that it was very common, if you were even in, like, the middle to upper middle class, you would be buried usually with two scrolls. One of them was the Book of Breathings. The other was the Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm. These scrolls had consistent text. The only difference is they would include your name, right, of course, because they were buried with you. And so the one book, I'm going to forget now what the name of the guy was. One of the the excerpt from the Book of Breathings was for, like I think, a guy and the excerpt that Joseph had of the book of the dead was actually for a female. If I remember correctly, his, his name was Hor, H O R H O R like the God, right? Horus or Hor. Um, and, uh, so we have, uh, these two scrolls, which happened to be written for two different people. Um, interestingly, so he had, it must've come from two different mummies. Um, so, so yeah, these are commonly buried with mummies. There's nothing unique about these other than the name of the person who died, you know, being in them. And the concept was, interestingly enough, like a lot like the Mormon temple ceremony. You had to go through this process to travel from uh, to the world of of the af- you know to the afterlife, and if you didn't want to go to the Egyptian version of hell or whatever you had to go through these processes, um, and you had a new name. Hmm, Sounds like sound, Mormonism. Sound familiar? Yeah, and so these <laughs> this Egyptian process happened, and so the Book of the Breathing, Book of the Dead, essentially taught your spirit what to say and what to do yeah. to enter the afterlife, you know. And so um, everybody would be buried with them, right, because you want them to be able to go. And so uh, very similar to the Mormon temple ceremony, actually, interestingly enough. So anyway, yeah. uh, So look, this happens. Joseph talks about it in his journal. um, He talks about translating. We have the book, the notebook, like I mentioned, Mm -hmm. where they're literally saying this character means this in English. That's called translation folks. That's not hypothesis. That's not, Oh, what if this meant this? That's Joseph saying this means this. That's literally the dictionary definition of the word translation. Why do I bring that up? We'll talk about that in a second, because definitions are changing magically over time. Mm. Um, So Joseph mentions the book of Joseph, his namesake, as being one of the scrolls that he bought from Chandler, right? Um, That sounds pretty important. So, we have the Book of Joseph, too, in the Pearl Great Price, right? No. Whoops. What?
1: What do you mean, whoops? Yeah, it's not there. What? Well, hey, look. The the guy was married to 20 women. He hasn't got enough time to translate everything. I mean, (laughs) seriously. Oh, my God. Why... why in God's green
0: earth would he not translate the book of Joseph?
1: It, it, you would think he would go there first, maybe. since that's yeah, his it's his namesake. And, you know, yeah. Let uh, me give you just an example yeah. of how bad his attempt was. And it, it's just humorous that the first facsimile has a man laid out on this bed. And it's very a very common scene. But part of it was missing. And so... Somebody with a magic pencil restored <laughs> the picture <laughs> and they put a man's head on what's supposed to be Anubis. Uh oh. Jackal's yeah. head. Yeah. Uh, then Joseph goes on to describe the other things going on in the room, including the canopic jars underneath the, the bed, uh-huh. which holds the entrails, the guts, yep. the insides of the dead person. Uh didn't he also put a knife?
0: He put a knife in the guy's yeah. hand, which it yeah. didn't and, have a knife.
1: So that's originally. Abraham getting sacrificed. And this is <laughs> <clears throat> By the way, oh that's another aspect of this. Joseph Smith is is uh able to uh excuse, if you will, or validate some of his teachings through the translation of this book which he did with the book of mormon he's doing that here too he's including things in his in his fake translation that Mm -hmm. justify what he's been teaching in sermons and so forth i see yep Yep. anyway yeah that's a good thing to do kind of handy hey
0: god taught this thousands of years ago guys this proves that i'm giving you the word of god um so so look all of this is pretty clear at Joseph's Day, what's going on? What he's claiming is very clear. He says it in his own words in his diary that he's translating these characters to English. And he said, quote, he was creating an English alphabet of uh, or an Egyptian alphabet. okay? Um, pretty clear. That's translation, right? If you want to translate a language. So uh, that's phase one. that's the that's the story. Phase two is something happens in the 1840s. This thing called the Rosetta Stone is found. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. It helps people get a leg up on the translation of Egyptian. Pretty soon, we're translating Egyptian. Well, score, right, for the church, because then yeah. these scrolls could be translated and the hieroglyphs, et cetera, the hypocephalus and all that could be translated and proven to be... What Joseph said, they were that is awesome. Talk about proving he's a prophet, right? Well, <laughs> <Whoops>. <laughs> we just talked about a bunch of quotes from that time period where everybody's like, uh, "This dude was a fraudster. None of these translations are correct." Uh oh. Well, what's your story going to be then? What do we well, do interestingly, now? well, yeah, interestingly, the church just kind of buried that.
1: Didn't they for decades? They, well, I mean, they, I, I they never grew well, up hearing, huh? That, Sorry, that's what I was just going to say. They, they didn't bring it up on purpose, and barely skimmed over uh, the Book of Abraham in in the Sunday school classes. It was just briefly mentioned. No thorough investigation of what the hell was going on. I, I can remember sitting in sacrament meetings, bored out of my mind. And studying, I guess you call it studying, <laughs> the, the facsimiles, especially number two, the hypocephalus, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. thinking, wow, this is fucking amazing, man. What, What is yeah. this? What, what's going on here? And then, oh. Me too. Oh, I loved there, it. There's the, the interpretation right there. There's Kolob, and there's this, and, and <laughs> that, and words that are completely made up. Well, and it's funny. Uh,
0: we we picked out a couple funny things in the Hyphacephalus. For example, there's a, a phallic <laughs> symbol of yeah. a, of an erect, you know, penis on this god or whatever. And uh, Joseph said it was God sitting on his throne. And I, well, <laughs> I guess you know, men call their unit different slang. <laughs> I guess throne is usually throne is used for toilet. <laughs> But yeah, uh, that's it. I, you know, uh, yeah, that's kind of an embarrassing character, and it's sitting right there in the Mormon scriptures a big phallic symbol sticking up. Um, yeah, that's
1: well, so <laughs> that's... does the walking snake. Among the other images that are not included, you know, with the three facsimiles, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, there's the what's called the, the pillar of Enoch, and then there's a serpent with legs and a hard on. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, you can look it up. It's right, yeah. right in Larson's book. He's got a big man. colored picture of it.
0: Hilarious, man. So somehow this is the piece of of my life that's a little blurry because somehow, it, like, if you read through church, uh, whatever history documents, etc. Evidently, David, in the early 1900s, there was some questioning going around about this, because you can't avoid that with the New York Times publishing their article in 1912. Mm -hmm. Into the 1920s, I've seen stuff out there that tells me, like, hey, the lay membership knew that that these criticisms were going on. It was like a known thing in the church, and... But when you and I came around, we never heard about it. So somehow the church, either through just ignoring it or through just kind of, you know, not talking about it, you know, whatever. Let's not make that a thing. It just kind of drifted away, you know. So like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, I never heard a damn thing about those criticisms. I heard nothing about it. So the church, hey, you got to hand it to them. They did a good job. Somehow, some way, through several decades, literally, guys, these things weren't brought up. The criticisms were well known, but somehow they were buried. And that's, yeah, man. I mean, you got to hand it, hand it to the church. They did a good job of just letting that disappear, you know, let it go away. Okay, go bye-bye. Well, uh uh-oh here comes the internet. No. And everybody and their dog can even just look up something on their smartphone and boom, these, these ancient, you know, in quotes, criticisms back to the early 1900s and even late 1800s, they they surface. And they're right there in your face. Now the church has to deal with it again. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was over with. We got to deal with this damn book. That proves that Satan invented the internet. Oh, yes. Yeah. Satan invented the internet. So, what does the church do? Let's fast forward all the way to 2013. What comes out in late 2012, 2013 on the church website? Gospel topic essays. Gospel topic essays. And what are the essays about? Everything. They're about, well, everything. They're about these main pain point mm-hmm. gospel topics that the church is most commonly criticized about. So you have things like plural marriage and and blacks in the priesthood. Uh, in the priesthood and, and, and what's one of the essays that's written? It's an essay on the, the translation and historicity of the book of Abraham. Da, 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 da. and the church comes out and addresses this topic because well the internet
1: <laughs> right they and much, their hand was forced
0: yes they had to say something well here's the here's the problem i wouldn't wanna bend the guy behind this article or the people the guys Because you have a conundrum. On the one hand, you've got members that are suddenly hearing about these criticisms that have never heard about it before. And they're asking questions. Uh Uh-oh. They're starting to think for themselves. Double uh (laughs) Um, uh-oh. And so what are you going to do? Well, let's tell them what we want them to hear. Okay, that's one hand. But here's the trick. How do you do that? without letting members know about the criticisms of the book of Abraham, who don't have a clue that it's been criticized. They've never
1: heard. of; the, They haven't seen it on the internet yet. So not only now are they faced with this new subject that's, that's an issue, they're faced with the fact that that had been held from them, hidden from them, for however long they'd been involved in the church, essentially. Right? Yeah. It's two-pronged.
0: Right. So addressing the, the concerns and questions of one part of your membership creates the questions and concerns with the other part of your membership. Because they they never even knew this was a problem to begin with. So you're kind of in a catch-22. Well, that's exactly what happened, guys. So they tried to, here's how the church tried to do it. They published these articles, but they didn't let anybody know about the articles. <laughs> So they kind of, you know, they put it out there so they could say, well, we've addressed these questions. We've answered these questions. Well, well where? Where did you answer? Well, all you gotta do is an internet search. Well, why can't I just see it on the front page of your website? Well, you got to go 12 layers deep. <laughs> to get... Why don't we just read this at general conference? Exactly, bro. This should have been read in front of the world. So, oh my goodness, now you have this opportunity to address this issue, but guess what? There is no good answer for the book of Abraham because it's a fucking fraud. So what are we going to say about it? I have an idea, said Bob the janitor, right? Some mysterious guy who said he had a good idea. Uh, Why don't we say that... Translate doesn't really mean translate.
1: <laughs> That's clever, man. That's <laughs> Work that shit. Work it.
0: Oh, my God. Let me read you just a couple excerpts, guys, because we're going long and we don't want to make this over an hour or something. So, uh, wow. Um I got to pull out some gems here. I'll give you the link to the gospel topic essay because they're kind of hard to find, like I said, in our podcast uh, notes. But, um, (laughs) okay, so check this out, guys. Joseph's translations took a variety of forms. Some of his translations, like that of the Book of Mormon, utilized ancient documents in his possession. Okay, I thought that's uh, what the book of Abraham was too, but let's continue. Other times his translations were not based on any known physical records. Okay, hold on a second right there. How do you translate something that's not in your possession? What? You have a dream. Okay, that <laughs> that's not translation. That would oh, be shit. revelation, right? Um, so Joseph's translation of portions of the Bible, for example, included restoration of original text harmonization of contradictions within the Bible itself and inspired commentary. Well, guys, that's not translation then. Uh, that would be, I guess, clarification. You want to call it that? But that's not translation. You could even say Joseph was correcting the Bible or something, but he wasn't translating it. Okay. Cause he didn't have the original whatever clay tablets or whatever the f- hell the Bible was. Anyway, So some evidence suggests that Joseph studied the characters on the Egyptian papyri and attempted to learn the Egyptian language. Well, yeah, it doesn't suggest that. It states that. Okay, let's be clear. (laughs) His history reports that in July 1835, he was, quote, continually engaged in translating an alphabet to the Book of Abraham and arranging a grammar of the Egyptian language as practiced by the ancients. Well, that seems pretty clear. (laughs) That would be translation. This grammar, as it was called, consisted of columns of hieroglyphic characters followed by English translations recorded in a large notebook by Joseph's scribe, William W. Phelps. Another manuscript written by Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery has Egyptian characters followed by explanations. Well, that would be very clearly a work of translating one language to another. This is what they say about it. The relationship of these documents to the book of Abraham is not fully understood.
1: (laughs) Oh my god.
0: It's it gets better. It's yeah. it says neither the rules nor the translations in the grammar book correspond to those recognized by Egyptologists today. We're so <laughs> not sure what he was doing. <laughs> but it but they try to be nice. They whatever the role of the grammar book, it appears that Joseph Smith began translating portions of the book of Abraham almost immediately after the purchase of the papyri. Phelps apparently viewed Joseph Smith as uniquely capable of understanding the Egyptian characters. Quote, as no one could translate these writings, he's told his wife, they were presented to President Smith. He soon knew what they were. Okay, that's translation, guys. What do you mean you don't know the role of those books? He was translating. That's, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> wow. uh, check this out. They admit it later on. None of the characters on the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the there book of go. Abraham. Well, there thank you. Thank you for admitting that.
1: None.
0: Scholars have identified the papyrus fragments as part of standard funerary texts that were deposited with mummified bodies. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> The fragments date to between 3rd century BCE and the 1st century CE, long after Abraham lived. Bing, bing, bing. If it smells like a duck, talks like a duck. Did I say smells like a duck? Farts like a duck. (laughs) Farts like a duck. (laughs) Oh my God, man. So here we go. Look, neither the Lord. This is where the lies began, guys. This is outright fucking lying. Listen to this sentence. Neither the Lord nor Joseph Smith explained the process of translation of the book of Abraham. What?
1: Wow. What? So they don't want you to read this top top, you know, gospel topic essay, and at the same time, I guess they really do. And their their logic is so circuitous. And what what's the word for it? Non-intelligible, that they're hoping you'll just say, well, fuck, I'm I'm going to just quit reading this. I'm confused. Yeah, well, look, man, if you
0: tell me Joseph Smith didn't explain the process of translation, but then you show me the Joseph Smith Papers Project from his diary, where he clearly explains the process of translation what do you want me to think? What, what do you, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Joseph himself said, I am translating the Egyptian characters into English. That is as clear as fucking day. And then you're going to tell me he didn't explain the process of his translation. Of course he did. What the hell? How do they get away with saying that? Long-faced lie. My God, man, that's terrible. So here's the clincher, guys. This is what it all comes down to. The veracity and value of the Book of Abraham cannot be settled by scholarly debate <laughs> concerning the book's translation and historicity. Of course, you can't use you can't use logic and academia and scholarly knowledge and what's in front of your fucking face. Come on, uh, look. The book of Abraham, the truth of the book of Abraham is ultimately found how? Through prayer and confirmation of the spirit. Feelings. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Nothing more than
1: feelings. Teach me truth. (laughs) I'm having a feeling in my lower abdomen right now. (laughs) After hearing all this nonsense. Oh my
0: god, what would you do? So here's the here's the conundrum. Lots of people, guys, that I've talked to, for whatever reasons, you can't blame them, whatever, they didn't see stuff on the internet, they didn't know that there were these issues with the book of Abraham. Okay, that's fine. At, at one point we didn't know, okay um so they they go searching and guess what they found the gospel essays well they're told to go to church sources right don't go to non-church sources Mm -hmm. so they go to a church source for their information best place to go right safest they read this gospel essay that i just read to you and they have the same experience i just had they're like what That doesn't make sense. You're saying translate doesn't mean translate? What the hell? And so they left because of that. That's the irony, guys. The gospel Mm -hmm. essays actually themselves, written by the church, have kicked people out of the church.
1: I I, I would be curious how many have left over the Abraham issue. Oh, yeah. I would think thousands. Thousands, I'm
0: sure of it. Absolutely yeah. sure of it. Just like thousands left after the the dreaded November, you know, announcement back in the day of exactly. before yeah. God changed his mind again. Um yeah. Thousands left. They must feel like idiots now that God changed his mind.
1: So what <sighs> what's the future of this church with these <laughs> issues? I think it'll just simply be rendered irrelevant. I think you're right. You and I, I think As I said in
0: the last episode, I would say again, I think things like the book of Abraham, things like the book of Mormon, even, which is crazy, you would say, but I really do think they're going to be rendered down to the point, guys, these are just good moral stories. They're stories, they're not history, they're not what really happened. But look, that doesn't matter, the teachings of God are in these stories. Mm -hmm. I I really think they're going to, that's the safest place for them to go because they're so provable that they're wrong, right? That they're
1: just fraud, bullshit. Um, And so, So yeah. They're they're appealing to the most simple-minded people, Mm -hmm. if you will. People that don't even go there in their thinking, uh, Mm -hmm. let alone adventure into the world of critical thinking they they just none of that matters to them and those are the ones that are still active in the church they just hey it i don't really give a shit where any of this stuff came from i get warm inside when i read it yeah that's you're you're talking about yeah. new apologetics which we should do an
0: episode on apologetic style for the church has changed over the years and that's we've true. gone from very scholarly, very, well, here's a counterpoint to your point, right? Type of style and even criticism and ad hominem attacks, but that's side point. We've gone from that style of apologetics in the church to an apologetics of touchy feely, uh, apologetics of, you know what? It doesn't really matter if the book of Mormon is real history or not. How do you feel when you read it? Right. That kind of thing. Um, and it's like, well, how do you feel when you take a hit of your favorite drug? Or how do you feel when you watch a great fantasy show, right? I mean, uh, does that mean it's not fantasy? I mean, um, yeah. Anyway, guys. Okay. Man, hour. I just got on my soapbox on that. And uh, it just pisses me off, honestly. Um to call something translation for the major life of the church, let's look at it. Most of the life of the church, this is real. This is a translation of those scrolls. And then now to change their tune, right? Oh, well, it's not really translation. It's what? That ah, it just yes. pisses me off, guys. It should piss you off too, listeners.
1: <laughs> if you're lied to about other things that blatantly in your life, um, like this gal that we talked about LDS church in the news, you take action. It's bad enough. It's like, well, I can't just let that go.
0: No bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. And look, she's right. It's not just her time and her life that she spent on this thing, which, hello, that's valuable enough. Okay. I think we'd all agree with that. It's her money. It's everything she gave to the church. She gave to them on the premise of lies. She's totally correct. You know, it's, it's just a fucking collection of lies and you cannot downplay the tragedy and the impact of that on people. These are people's lives that you're destroying. You're misleading people on purpose, you know, and that's a bad thing. And I I hope in our own ways, we kind of get whatever you want to call that up in arms, you know, about that. And, and we speak out. You know, now good for her. She's taking it to the next degree and she's actually doing a, a lawsuit. Um, excellent. I love it, you know, but we don't all have to do that. It, but at least hopefully we'll speak out. We'll speak up. We'll say, hey, be a critical thinker. Follow your instinct. Follow your follow reasoning um, and and down with these lying organizations. Um, anyway, man. Wow, I got this. I think this one got me a little uppity.
1: Yeah, you got carried away. I thought you <laughs> might because we've discussed it before, and I could see it was it was in your blood. It was making your blood boil, and it bothers me. Hey, mm. I understand. I've I've worked up a bit of a hunger. I think I'm going to make a Aber, Aber Spam sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's after I polished my elastic rat slapper. Oh, I love it.
0: Uh, Well, I'm going to join you in that Abraham, Abraham spam sandwich. (laughs) And uh, by the gift and power of fraud, we will have another good week ahead of us. Thanks guys. Love you. Peace out.